Hello and welcome to Alchemy Radio, where the only thing we ask of you is that you keep an open mind. Today's guest is Marty Leeds. Marty has been writing songs and poetry for over 20 years and has an interest in everything from philosophy to esoterica, maths and the sciences. He was born and raised in southern Wisconsin and has lived in Washington, Oregon and Colorado. And today on Alchemy Radio, Marty will be discussing mathematics, geometria and the English alphabet. We'll be talking about the world around us and how maths can actually be fun and can apply to everything that we see and do not see in the universe. It promises to be an interesting chat. Marty, welcome. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm really good, thanks. Enjoying the typical Irish autumnal weather, which is rain, rain and more rain. But uh, apart from that, everything's great. Good. Good to hear. Well, it's great to have you on Alchemy Radio. I've been a follower of your work for quite some time now, and I find it very, very interesting. Um, I must say, mathematics was never my strong point in school. I never found it interesting, and I was delighted to uh, never have to touch on it again, or so I thought at the time. But on discovering your work, Pi, the Great Work, um, your, your first book, I have to say, mathematics is not exactly what we're taught in school, and it can be very interesting, enlightening, and indeed enjoyable to read about. So uh, before we delve into that and get into the nitty-gritty, tell us a little bit about your background and what it is you do and what you have been doing for the last number of years. Um, well, by profession, I'm basically a, a sign designer. I do a lot of design or like large format printing. Um, I've kind of taken a break with, from it from in the last like year or so. Uh, basically, I like, quit my job and tried to focus on the book. So I'm, I'm kind of just working here and there, um, you know, kind of living off book sales. And I'm trying to write um, the next book that I'm working on right now. I just released a book, Pi um, in the English Shelf, Volume 1. Um, but yeah, so the last five years, basically been a designer. Um, and then uh, basically just studied a lot of stuff over the years, kind of um, an autodidact, you know, just self-taught, self-learner. So, I, you know, I, I read a ton of books um, on my own and basically learned all this, all of this mathematics, mythology, ritual, you know, history. I kind of learned it all on my own. I didn't graduate college or anything like that. So I spent a lot of years really kind of honing in um on this information and so the books are really kind of trying to take basically everything that i've learned throughout the years um and kind of place them place it over mathematics and, and a philosophical symbolic approach to mathematics so that's that's kind of been my goal um so that so right now i just i just released um pi in the english alphabet volume one and my first book is pi the great work and that was released uh in december of last year Okay, and uh, Pi the Great Work was very, very well received, I must say. So tell us a bit about that, and I suppose, what was the inspiration for that book? Because for me, on the outside looking in, it seems like quite an unusual, well, the title is quite unusual, but the subject matter is also unusual, and you're quite unique in the research that you do. Um, yeah, well, I mean, really, what compelled me to write the book is um, the, the same thing. I mean, I don't really consider myself a mathematician like you. Whenever I looked at mathematics, it always freaked me out. You know, it was just like, oh, it's so, you know, it's so arduous and it's just equations. And, and when I, when I um, you know, when I got to math again, like later in my life and, and looked at it philosophically, I realized that the math that we're taught in school 
um, and the curriculum that we're taught and how to learn math is actually a very terrible way to learn math and that there's so much more embedded in math mm-hmm. um, and, and, and geometry. And, and then, you know, there's a reason why they call it sacred number or sacred geometry is because this, these things actually can point to um, systems of divination and actually sacredness of the self and sacredness of the, uh, what's around you. So when I approached Pi the Great Work, I really wanted to reintroduce a lot of these uh, mathematical ideas, things like squaring the circle and, and the golden ratio, golden proportion, things like this, and reintroduce them to, um, uh, to readers in a visual way, and, and, and more so and, and, and putting spiritual ideas, philosophical ideas, poetic ideas on top of these, these um, geometries and numbers um, to try to, uh, just like I said, just try to reintroduce them to people so that people could realize that mathematics isn't something that they should be scared of, that mathematics is actually everywhere, and it's actually a very uh, a pleasurable pursuit as it has been for me. So that was the goal of the first book, for sure. And would you consider writing that book to be a journey of sorts? Because you touch on so many different topics. I mean, anything from anthropology through spirituality to linguistics, even music. And I know you're, uh, you're heavily involved in music yourself. So uh, wh- what kind of a journey was it as you researched and wrote the book for you on a personal level? Well, this is, this is actually kind of what I, what I ask my readers to go on with me is this journey. Because really, it's been the journey of all journeys for me. Um, this re you know coming into this knowledge and, and all, all of this material is really kind of awakened my own consciousness in a way mm-hmm. and it made me realize why this stuff is not taught in in school is because they basically do not want you to know things like this and that r- really learning mathematics like this um, can actually open doors in your consciousness, if you will, to so many other things um, our, our history, seeing the golden proportion everywhere seeing phi everywhere in nature. And really, so it allows you to actually show the organization of nature itself and how really kind of like perfect or intelligent nature is. And so the journey that, um, you know, I'm taking right now with these books is I'm kind of learning this as I'm going. And so I'm asking readers to kind of, you know, go with me on this and, and, and realize that I'm learning it as I'm going and that I may make mistakes. And that's okay because I'm a human being, you know, and uh, we all make mistakes. Um, so this, you know, un- understanding mathematics in a whole different way than as far as I know, no one else was taught this, was like I, I really felt compelled to share it with people. And so that's what, that's what I'm trying to do right now. So. Fantastic. So let's touch on some of the topics. Or let's, let's begin, Marty, maybe with the, what excites you most about that journey. I mean, what, what are the standout moments for you? And then we can kind of link them with various other topics as we continue to chat. Well, um, the one thing that really kind of gave me this like metaphysical slap in the face is kind of what I call it, was that there was so many mathematical principles that are not taught in school that are that are, are, are so amazing. And, and a few of them are like the, you know, um, the tetractus. Like my brother is he went he's basically an engineer, essentially. So he had a lot of advanced mathematics, not only in high school, but in the university level as well. He took advanced calculus, advanced trigonometry and things like that. And um he was not taught a lot of this stuff. I mean, I remember when I finished the first book and I asked him, like, have you ever heard of the Tetractus? Or, or it's, you know, it's called the Pythagorean Lambda or Lambdoma. Mm-hmm. And he said, no. You know, at a university level, they don't teach any of this. And then I asked him, you know, about, well, do you know about squaring the circle? You know, no, he didn't, you know. And it's not because he's dumb, far from. Yeah. But they don't teach this stuff. You know, um, I asked him about the Fibonacci sequence. Now, he probably learned about this somewhere along the way, 
But no teacher ever told him how important it is or how you could find this on the human body or your or, or a flower in your garden and things like this. You know, so um, this was really important to me, like go, going into these mathematical principles and, and understanding how important they are was it was just like it was so amazing to me. I was like, here's something like squaring the circle. Now, this is something so simple. So literally so simple that like a fourth or a third grader can learn. And yet we're not taught this in school. And what this introduces you to is just this wonderful world of geometry and proportion and ratio and symmetry and, and how the cosmos is actually built. Um, and, and this is something that's not taught. And so it was very important to me. And so the journey in learning this stuff was actually, um, it was like going into the, to, well, the philosophy of the universe, because, you know, philosophy is phi, lasso, and phi. And so philosophy in the world, in the word, philosophy actually tells you about number. It tells you about, um, to, to focus on number. The word itself is telling you what to do. So, you know, go, going into all this and realizing how many people do not know about this, I felt very compelled, almost like forced in, in, in a way to try to convey this information any way that I could, in the best way that I could. And I might not be the best spokesperson for it. But in, it's been such a wonderful journey for me because it's really the one thing that's really pulled out is synchronicity. My life has been this synchronistic journey ever mm -hmm. since I came into this knowledge. Things, connectivity all over that I didn't think were connected. You know, it just, for instance, pi to spirituality or even mathematics to spirituality. That seems completely crazy to some people. Now going through this journey, it makes absolute sense. And now when I show it to other people, they get, I, I get the response from them as well that, wow, you know, it's that you really get this, this jaw dropping, like, whoo, that's crazy, you know? And so this, it's just been really, it's a wonderful ride for me. So. Well, it's very interesting that you bring up synchronicity because I had a great conversation with Anthony Peake. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work. Um, I am, on, yeah. yeah. Well, Anthony was on uh, one of the previous episodes of Alchemy and we had an amazing chat about synchronicity and the nature of it um, on a kind of, a, I suppose, a spiritual level. And he alluded to the fact that there are patterns and almost fractals that occur within the universe on a mathematical level. So obviously you can take us deeper on that um, and have done so in the book. Um, something that struck me, I must say, is how everything from, for example, games or play or leisure time that can all be linked to, for example, let's take off the top of our heads, religion and spirituality. They can be linked through mathematics. And I think a, a good place maybe to start with that is the game of chess, because everybody listening will be familiar with chess, whether they play it or not. And they'll, I suppose, look at the ubiquitous squares. And I know that you've examined the chessboard and where the game might have come from and what it means. So let's have a, a quick look at that and see where it takes us, Marty. Okay, yeah, um... The reason that I ended up, you know, because I was getting into like Freemasonry, alchemy, um, gematria, yeah. things like this, this kind of led me to chess because Freemasonry has that, you know, that chessboard floor and almost like all of their illustrations and Masonic halls and everything. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I re-examined chess. And when you sit down to play a game of chess, like if you know how to play the game and you play with somebody, you, you hardly ever think about number when you do this. You really don't. You like, okay, what's my next move? How am I going to capture this? pawn or this guy here but really the whole game is based off number i mean the whole game you know there's there's a reason that there's you know uh, the initial battlefield has 16 black squares and 16 white and there's a reason that there's 32 total black squares and 32 total white squares and there's a reason there's 64 there's a reason that it's a square 
there's a reason that there's eight pawns per side. And, you know, we, we can go into a lot of this. But when you the, the thing that really struck me is that when you sit down to play a game like that, um, or even play a game of cards, I don't want to get off the chess thing, but even when you play a game of cards, you don't think that you're actually dealing with mathematics, but you are, of course, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this was the thing that really struck me. I was like, okay, so whoever created chess initially, whoever this was, we really don't know where it came from. Apparently from India is the, is the oldest, um, oldest record of a game like chess anyway. Whoever built it, built it off number exclusively. They built it off number and geometry. So, you know, um, so, uh, you know, we can look at, you know, we can go in and actually, um, what I've done is actually create this cipher for the English alphabet. And then what I did is assign the numbers to the, the, the characters of chess. And so what this will do is actually give you a, a lunar, a solar, and a processional calendar from the pieces of chess. And it will also encode pi in a number of ways. Um, and now, of course, now when you sit down and, and play a game of chess, the last thing you're thinking about is the procession of the equinoxes or the, the, the synodic lunar cycle or something like that. Yeah. Yet whoever created the game was absolutely, you know, um, intimately linked to the, the, the cycles of time and intimately linked to sacred geometry and sacred number. Absolutely. So... You know, and so decoding this whole thing, it, number one, it was just absolutely amazing to me that this was all encoded in here. Um, and, at, you know, I'm not a statistician. And so I can't really tell you like what like the numbers would be about, uh, you know, uh, with chess. But the chances of this coming out the way it, it did is about a million to one. And so for me, it's like at this point, there's there's no way that this was done, that this just was happenstance or was an accident by any stretch. This is absolutely intentional. Um, and so, yeah, so chess, when you look at it, you don't think about numbers yet. That's all it's telling you about. So I looked at it numerically and then I actually went in and looked at it symbolically as well. Like, what does the king mean? Yeah. And what is the numerical equivalent of king, and, and et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and I have a video on this, um, and it's just called Chess Pie, the Great Work, and you can go, and I think it's like a tough 20, 15, 20-minute 20 video, mm-hmm. and I explain all the calendars and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so we can, we can talk about that here if you want, or we can go into the cipher, but if you want, you can just go and check out the video, and it's, it's, I think it's very interesting. So, yeah, well, um, I think the video is yeah. certainly something um, that people would be interested in checking out, and I think it's worth doing um, I suppose as an addendum to uh, to our conversation, but the significance of something like the game of chess, um, or any of the patterns that you have decoded or noticed, Marty, is it is it something sacred? Is it a form of language? Is it uh, almost by design a, a kind of a ritual? Or what, what's your feeling on that? that uh, my feeling now, um, coming into this knowledge, is that everything is sacred. You know that everything has a, a divine aspect to it. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a reason that, you know, well, the king and queen have been these these, these two royal figures that we've seen all throughout history, yeah. monarchies, et cetera, et cetera. So, and then you see this in the game of chess, right? You know, um, and, and, and then we can go into why, you know, the king and queen and stuff like that. But um, it's interesting that king and queen are called rulers, right? Mm-hmm. Well, ruler is the reference to measurement, you know? So right there, these two important people that run entire kingdoms throughout history are called measurements. It's very interesting. So it's really kind of, even by the name of what we call these two individuals, it's telling you about number. It's saying, look at number. It's saying, look at geometry. And so the fact that, you know, you have 
the two rulers in the game of chess, and then you have all these numbers assigned to it. It's you know, it's like, well, of course you, of course, there's going to be more in there. You know, there's more. Uh, you know, so the game of chess, you know, it's 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 almost like a subconscious game. You know, you play the game, and yet you don't know that you're actually playing with the cycles of time when you do that. You know, so this is a very interesting thing to me. Um, the game now, looking at chess, I look I look at it in a completely different way than I ever did ever. You know, and to me, it's, it is a nobleman's game. It's called a nobleman's game. Mm. And there's this, um, I put it in the book. It's a, it's a quote from, uh, what's his name? Henry Huxley, I think it is. And he, and he basically says that, you know, the, the, the rules of, of chess are the laws of nature, and you are the players going through your life, you know, telling, playing the game and telling the story of your own life as you play the game of chess. So if you realize that the game of chess is almost like this fractal of your own life, you know, the two hours that you, you, you sit down and it's in one way, it's good versus evil. It's spirit versus matter or something like that. You know, it's yeah. this fractaliz- fractalization reflection of your entire life. And, 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 uh, and the movements of the board are the movements of yourself through time. So now I look at it like that. Now, if you would ask me about chess five years ago, I would have never been able to say anything close to what I just said. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and so it's really, really taken a game a simple game and, and shown a, a sacredness to it. Um, and so this was very amazing to me. And it's one of many examples that you have uncovered. Um, nature being another one, and it's something that interests me personally because you mentioned fractals there and you've noticed, I suppose, a fractal pattern in nature with regard to mathematics and the way that they are applied. Yeah, well, you know, um, what's so interesting to me about when, when I looked at, when I started looking at mathematics philosophically, right? I realized that you don't have to know mathematics at all to understand something like fractals. Mm. Um, and let me expand on this a little bit. Like you don't need to know Benoit Mandelbrot's, you know, uh, you know, his, the Mandelbrot set or his fractal object or anything like that to understand fractals. All you need to do is look at a leaf and you see that the veins of those leaf mimic the, you know, the tree itself and the, the, the tree itself mimics the roots in the ground. You know, and that, that those those roots or those veins mimic the veins in yourself, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. So when I was looking at, like, where do, like, religions or ideas like as above, so below, on earth, as it haven't come from, well, to me, that's a fractal idea. You know, what is up in the heavens is inside of you. Now, what's important is that you can put mathematics over this. But what's even more important is that you don't need mathematics whatsoever to see this. And that's the most important thing to me. So the ancient people that started coming up with these ideas that maybe they were monkeys or something and they were, they were crawling around the ground and they're like, look, this thing looks like that. Well, maybe when they actually started to get more conscious, you know, I'm kind of cu- talking off the cuff here, but yeah. when they got more conscious, they could actually, and started understanding number itself, then they could actually put this stuff to number and it would make complete sense. And then now you build civilizations over this, you build spiritualities, you, you build uh, religions philosophies, rituals over this, you know. Um, and so this is this was so important to me. Now we actually have multiple ways of saying as above, so below, mathematically. We have a torus. You go into the torus, you go in through the vortex, you're going in and you end up coming out. Mm. You have a Mobius strip. You go around one side and it's a Mobius strip is basically a length of, of what you could say paper and you twist it and you, you kind of fuse it back together. So it has one side and okay. one edge. So you can crawl along this edge the whole way and you go in and you come back out. You go in, you come back out. And then we have fractals. This is the further and further you go in, you're going to go back to that mathematical object. Mathematical object. 
what to, what this says to me is this is actually the nature of reality. And now we have all these spiritualities that tell us this. Um, and I put in the book, um, it's a Lakota philosophy. Now, they came up with basically the same philosophy as Egypt or Christianity, and yet they were an ocean apart. And their philosophy was um, that which is in the stars is also on the earth, and that which is on the earth is also in the stars. Mm. This is fractals. So they're telling us about the nature of our own reality. Um, modern science, even though they're coming up with these mathematical equations, would not accept this to be a truth. I think they're wrong. I think they're dead wrong. And I think it really says something about the nature of consciousness and the nature of what we're doing in this dimension as well. Um, and this is astrology as well. Astrology has basically always been this, you know, it's okay, the movements of heaven affect the movements of you, et cetera, et cetera. But basically the, uh, the underlying core of astral theology or astrology is that which is in the stars is in you. The stars are in you. They're an aspect of you. They, they're a reflection of the neurons in your head in one way, you know, that sort of thing. I think this is what these ancient religions are telling us, ancient philosophies, ancient spiritualities, but more so our modern mathematics are telling us, us this now. So what, so how do we, how do we continue now? Mm. You know, how do we actually look at our own world? You know, next time you look at the stars, if you realize that when you're looking out, you're actually looking in, it gives you a completely different perspective about the world that we've inhabited, you know, inherited. So I think it does. And it also says uh, something about, I suppose the dogma that surrounds, um, for example, you might take a linguist and um, an astronomer and a lot of people would say there's nothing linking the two of those. Well, we do have, I suppose, the universe, universal language of mathematics and whether it's because of universities or time as it's gone by, I don't know what the reason, maybe you could speculate on the reason for it. As time has gone by, there seems to have been a separation between all of these, which essentially are linked uh, fields of study and it is numbers that's linking them and the problem that we've always had and you're managing to do it here is to uncode and to translate that language and to be able to apply it then to different things yeah i mean it, this really gets to the uh, the idea of a primordial language you know uh, we've always heard this well you have like a, you know the fall of the tower of babel you know where it's like this primordial language to me the primordial language is the language of god um, it's the it's the it's the word it's the logos um, and this this idea of the logos which is akin to um, in the beginning God created the word you know in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh etc. Mm -hmm. Logos means symbol ratio reason um, you know etc. And so it has all of these components to it. And so to me, if you're talking about a primordial language, really what you're doing is you're talking about the, the consecration of the confluence, I guess you'd say, of of symbol, number, geometry, sound, meaning. And so this was all one language, but the most important thing about understanding that primordial language is um, understanding who's who's speaking and who you're speaking to. Yeah. And this is this is what I this and, and actually um, let me say this: um, Dante in the Inferno is talking about the Edenic language, this uh, Adam Cadmon kind of thing. Mm -hmm. He says when he addresses God, he says, "I am." So. You have to understand this primordial language that basically whenever what he was speaking, you know, this is, of course, I think it's mythology, but when they were speaking this primordial language, basically they were understanding that John Gibbons and Marty Leeds are having a conversation, but really what it is is God's having a conversation through two different people. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. And they recognize this, and they recognize that every time you say I, you're talking about one, you're talking about a wholeness, you're talking about that you are speaking on behalf of the entire universe, if you will. 
Mm. I think this is the, this is the idea of the primordial language. And you can get into the idea of the Freemasonic, the lost Masonic word. I don't know if you know about this, but it's this idea that there was a singular word or something like that. But I don't take it like that at all. I think the word is this understanding of, of the language of God and that you, we cannot diminish the language into just sound and character. It's also number. It's also geometry. It also has uh, meaning, you know, etc. So by the specialization of, of science throughout the years where, you know, anthropology does not talk to botany, botany doesn't talk to the astronomers, etc. right? We, we've separated all this stuff. And really what we need to do is combine it all because in my opinion, everything is interconnected. The very words we speak, the geometry of our sky, how a flower comes to fruition. Everything is connected. Now, once again, now let's go back. We don't need to understand mathematics at all. We don't need to understand physics at all to understand this. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm standing on the earth. You're standing on the same earth. That means we're connected. That's irrefutable fact. Yeah. You know, if, we're, if you're in a plane and I'm on the ground, we're sharing the air. We're, sh- we're in this electromagnetic vehicle together. There's no, there's no refuting that. So, and then that, what is that connected to? It's connected to the space. The space is connected to the sun. The sun is connected to all the planets, the planets, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's an irrefutable, irrefutability about the fact that all is one. This is philosophy. Now, now we can go and actually put mathematics over this and say, no, this is absolutely true. This is what I'm trying to do. So when, when we talk about a primordial language, this is what I think that the, at least the people in the Bible were talking about with the, with the problem Babel. Um, and this, of course, Babel is where we get the word Babel to speak incoherently. You yeah, know? Yeah. So now we're, we're, we're talking two aspects of God. John Gibbons and Marty Leeds are talking to each other. We're, we're trying to figure out what's going on. But in order to truly understand what's going on, we need to um, make ourselves akin to the language of God, which means we have to understand geometry, number, symbol, etc., it's utterly fascinating because what it does for me, and so much of this information is new to me, it, uh, it's almost like you've discovered the glue that binds everything together and that just makes sense of so many seemingly separate entities. And, well, when you look at, for example, linguistics and the English language, which you have delved into in such depth in your second book, um, I think it's a really good example of how... Everything we do, I mean, we communicate through words by and large. Um, if, if I'm speaking to you right now, it's through words because we're not face to face. So that that's linked to numbers, which in turn is linked to pretty much everything else that we're talking about and the world around us. So when you say God and the language of God, you're not necessarily, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding of it is that you're not necessarily speaking about, uh, for example, going to church or mass or whatever it might be. You're speaking about the universe, the creator, the uh the omnipotence and the omnipresence that surrounds us everywhere and the way that we can decode that then is through numbers or when when we apply this grid of numbers if you like to it suddenly everything makes sense and we can see how the numbers traverse into different areas and everything suddenly becomes almost like a map with connected dots as opposed to this great abyss which it seems like for so many people when they look at things spiritually and philosophically. Yeah, what's what's so interesting for me is that I'm not a spiritual person, you know, like I didn't go to church, I'm not advocating any sort of spirituality or any sort of organized, organized religion at all. When I was going through this process, I what I wanted to look for is I call it the, the germinal seed of truth born from the stars, which basically means there is below the perennial philosophy in a way. These religions had to sprout up from some 
I say, one source. There had, there had to be a reason that God, the idea of God has affected whatever God you believe in. Yeah. Has affected every moment of history. That's a fact, you know? <laughs> and so where did the, uh, my opinion was not like, where did Christianity come from? Or where did Islam come from? Or, or I mean, I wanted to know what these things come from, but I didn't want to try to like, um, you know, sift through or unmuddy the waters of Islam or Confucianism. I wanted to know where these things sprouted up originally. Mm. So in order to do this, I basically had to go to some base of everything. And what's more basic than number, if you will, you know, I mean, number, I mean, it's the language of God, according to Galileo, all is number. Pythagoras said that, you know, so when, when I got to number, it was like, oh, okay, I was, I could, I could lay all of these spiritualities over top of them and everything that I had ever learned over top of number. And then doing this, everything that I got from it was, was, had a spiritual quality to it. And this was so fantastic to me. It was so amazing. Now that for our modern minds, that seems kind of weird and strange, but at the same time, there's, you know, it's called sacred geometry and sacred number. It's because literally by doing geometry and, and working with number, you're doing a, you're, you're, you're having a spiritual experience. This, you know, this was, this is what I got from it. And so when I talk about God, I'll say this, I mean, I wasn't necessarily an agnostic or an atheist or, or believed or not believed in God, but after doing this, I remember I, I called my mother at one point and I, and I told her, I was like, this was after I kind of constructed what this thing called Metatron's cube. Um, and it's in the Fibonacci sequence. We don't have to go into it here. But I called my mother and I was like, Mom, I, I, I have to say right now, I think I, I, I believe in God. And I never thought in my entire life that I would actually come to that position, especially with no indoctrination, no dogma. I didn't need no preacher or a priest. I didn't go to church. All I did was spent really years pursuing my own truths and or understanding the self or myself and years in contemplation. And, and, and studying. Um, and then I got to this place where I literally kind of like dropped to my knees and said, yes, I believe in the grand architect. Why? B because I, I, I see it now. Um, great quote by Joseph Campbell. I don't need faith. I have experience. And now I understand what he says, because I can go out in my woods right now and I can look and see the degree of phylotaxis and understand that that had to be that way in order for the light to catch the leaf, you know, for the, the leaf to catch the light and the dew for it to grow, for it to bloom, for it to look at me with its head. It had to follow these strict geometric laws. Yeah. That couldn't be an accident, you know, especially since it's everywhere. Um, and so to me, it really, it really hearkened to this idea that there is an intelligence behind nature that, but not only is there an intelligence that you can go in and grab it, and have a Gnostic revelation, if you will. Um, and so this was the kind of thing that I went through, and it was just so amazing to me. Um, and so what, what I'm trying to purvey to people is that he, I'm a guy that now believes in God that didn't need any single religion whatsoever. So to me, it was like, okay, this makes a whole lot of sense to where these religions actually came from. Mm, because there are so many common threads between the various religions. Absolutely. I mean, just speaking of Joseph Campbell, I mean, he spent his life pursuing this comparative mythology, and he is, I mean, he just put together just book after book of just showing this again and again and again, where there'll be, you know, a, a story that, you know, some native tribe told a thousand years ago, and it's the same story somewhere in Russia or something. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just the things that you would not, you know, two cultures that shouldn't be connected whatsoever, even, even by, you know, they maybe have never met, 
you know, or like you take a, a culture in like the Amazon or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, how did they, how would they come to similar spiritual ideas with having no connect, not knowing of the name Jesus Christ whatsoever? Mm-hmm. You know, this was very intriguing to me and I wanted an answer for that. And so I pursued it. And the fact of the matter is so many people brush off questions like that because there isn't an answer for it. And it's right. Let's shelve that and not not look at that. But there has to be an answer for any question, no matter what that question might be and no matter how large and all encompassing the question might be. So uh, that brings us on to, let's say, a man-made construct or something that we would consider um, to, to be man-made, such as language, um, the English language, because I know that that's something you've done a lot of work on. How does uh, how does mathematics apply to the English language, Marty? Well, I think that because everything is based off number, um, you know, when I got, I mean, when you look at all the languages, you know, at least all the major languages, like, you know, you have uh, the Egyptian alphabet, you have the Greek alphabet, you have the, you know, the Hebrew alphabet, all of these had numbers attached to them. So to me, it was like, okay, if number is the first thing, then the number is the first thing that's important. The characters and the language are kind of secondary, if you will. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I think they're both important, but it, you can understand the language through the number. So um, what I ended up doing was actually putting the alphabet, and we can go through the cipher if, if you'd like. I yeah, mean, that'd be great, kind of, I think. Okay. Um, yeah, let's do that so, that so the listeners have kind of a, a base or foundation here. Um, so there, what I did is I, um, I put the alphabet, the English alphabet, on my hands. And so there's 26 letters of the alphabet. And so I laid my hands out. And I said, um, A is my thumb, and then Z is my other thumb. And so this separates the alphabet between 13 letters and 13 letters. Okay. And so what you can do is you have um, 14 sections of your hand. So you're going to assign A to your thumb, and then you have 12 sections of your four fingers. So your first half, the first 13 letters of your alphabet is A, and then you're on to your 12 sections of your fingers. B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M. Gotcha. And, and then we're going to go to our right hand. And then it's N O P Q R S T U V W X Y, and then your thumb becomes Z. And so, what I did is I ended up using the motif of Genesis, uh, six days of creation, the seventh day or the Sabbath where God rested, and then I basically just walked back down. So, A becomes one, B is two, C is three, D is four, E is five, F is six, and then G is seven, and I rested on the seventh because okay. that's the Sabbath. And then I just walked back down. So H is six, I is five, etc. And so that takes care of your left hand. Yeah. So you have, uh, and then you're basically, because your left hand is a mirror of your right hand, you're just going to put those numbers onto your right hand now. So um, uh, N-O-P-Q-R-S-T is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and then Q-R-S-T, U-V-W-X-Y-Z becomes 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. So uh, A-B-C-D-E-F-G-H-I-J-K-L-M is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Same on your right hand. N-O-P-Q-R-S-T-U-V-W-X-Y-Z is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Mm-hmm. And so um, by doing this, what you're actually doing is um, there's, I have a video called the, the, the Holy Number Seven. You can actually put this on the chromatic music scale as well. I'm not going to go into that here, but really what it says is that our lives, numbers, geometry is musical in nature. It's harmonious. It has a time and a tune to it. Um, and so, it, like I said, you can put this on the chromatic music scale. And I won't go into that here because it's a little bit uh, kind of hard to explain or long to explain. But w- what you can do with those uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 is pull out the prime numbers. And those prime numbers are 2, 3, 5, 7, and then 5, 3, 2. This is on your left hand. 
and then the same on your right hand. Mm -hmm. this, this prime numbers add up to 27. Well, there's 27 bones in the human hand. So the prime numbers refer to the 27 bones in the human hand. Same on your right hand. You have the prime numbers, 2, 3, 5, 7, 5, 3, 2. So now we have 27, an alphabet literally referencing the 27 bones on each of your hands. And now you're left with the non-prime numbers on each side of your alphabet, A through M, N through C, which is 146 and 641. Yeah. You add these up, it's 22, and this leads you to your central 7, or your G and T on both sides of your alphabet. And 22 divided by 7 is 3.142. It's pi. Wow. So this gives you pi in your left hand with the 27 bones and the prime numbers and pi in your right hand. And you put those, those, your two hands together, say, in the act of prayer, and this gives you pi and pi, or pi begotten by seven and pi begotten by seven. The, the Hebraic Tetragrammaton, which was lauded by alchemists, you know, the Hebrews, etc., Christians as well, was, was actually symbolized as pi seven and pi, pi seven. And so the Tetragramma, gramma, meaning language, uh, the grammaton, um, is encoded in the English alphabet. Um, and it's also in Hebrew, it's he, vav, he, yad. And this gives you the numbers 5, 6, 5, 10. This equals 26. So we have 26 letters of the English alphabet, and we have the tetragrammaton equaling 26. So a perfect correlation between this holy name of God and then the actual letters and numbers of our English alphabet. Um, and so that's basically the cipher. And I, and, and I explain this in depth in a video called The English Alphabet Pi, The Great Work. And you can get it at martyleads33.com. What led you to create this cipher? Because for on the outside looking in, it seems so complicated. Um, what, what did actually lead you to that, Marty? Just, um, you know, just pursuing a line of thinking, really, you know, um, of, you know, coming before I even got into mathematics, really, it seemed like there was a, like the, the, the universe was an organized organism, mm. that the solar system was organized, that it was, per that it was perfect in its construction. And this was before I ever got to mathematics or the idea of, of divination or deity or God or anything like that. It was just like the, the story that science tells us is that basically this is an accident. It really has no real reason or purpose for its existence. Things are just kind of smashing together, falling into place, you know, that sort of thing. That paradigm didn't make a bit of sense to me. You know, because everything is so perfect. You know, if like we raise the, the oxygen level on this planet, you know, 2%, we die. Yeah. You know? And so how long has life been, at least on Earth, how long has it been uh, prevalent? You know, quite a while. So that means, you know, this sphere or Earth was, was maintained its equilibrium long enough to, to, to make complex beings like ourselves, to have conversations like we're having right now on, you know, technology like we're having right now to, to say that that's is somehow an accident or that it's just random things smashing together you know it didn't make any sense to me now you know you can make a claim that you know it's just evolutionarily and it's just an accident and you know we could argue about that all day long but now if you actually put numbers to the, to the thing well, no, no scientist or physicist or whatever can actually refute numbers because that's what they use to understand the, to yeah. the world, you know. So if I, you know, when I got into this stuff, um, what, you know, when I realized when I can show somebody a, a mathematical idea that it ends up being like, wow, that's very simple. And yet you then you go to what science is doing and it's just this long, ugly, arduous equations that nobody understands that, you know, I don't even think that they understand. 
you know, you, you kind of take Occam's razor to it. You know, you say, well, what makes more sense? What's, what's more simple? You know, the simplest answer is most often going to be the correct answer. Yeah, true. So when I got into mathematics and started simplifying mathematics and realizing that I was actually using these numerological principles that we can kind of go into, it's called decimal parity, digital root, um, that sort of thing. This was so simple and it made math so beautiful, symmetrical, wonderful, easy. And so what are you going to go with? Are you going to go with what modern science says, numerology? No, that's nonsense. It's a pseudoscience. It doesn't, you know, it's, it doesn't mean anything. Yet it makes sense. Well, I'm sorry. Like, I, I can't agree with you. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, 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 I just, I can't um, because this is too beautiful. And I go with the philosopher's credo of, you know, I think uh, George Heath said it. Um, truth is beauty and beauty is truth. If this makes sense, it's beautiful, it's symmetrical, then it's right. Yeah. You know, and, and if you show me the, the, the mass equation for the Higgs boson particle, which is just this ugly page long equation that doesn't mean shit to anyone, mm-hmm. then I'm sorry, I'm going to go with the former, you know? So, um, so yeah, so going, going into this and, and basically kind of doing numerological principles that are not accepted and then showing how beautiful they are and how many other billions of things it points to. It's just like, at this point, I'm like, I, I really have to say that, you know, this, this is the cipher for the English alphabet. I don't, I, you know, I, I feel, I don't know, it's a large claim, you know, <laughs> I realize that it's a, a yeah. very lofty claim, what I'm saying, and because basically what I'm saying is if I'm correct, then this changes the nature of mathematics. It changes the nature of how we understand language. Mm-hmm. It changes the nature of how we understand the universe, how the universe is put together. And that's, that, those are big claims. And so I, I have to take a step back. But at the same time, I, I have video upon video that can show you how this stuff works. And it's, you know, people have said it's pretty jaw-dropping in, in a lot of ways. So. Well, give us an example then of a practical application of the cipher, Marty, because one of, one of the things I have to say that really attracts me to your work is the esoteric element of it, because as you say, th- things, things are beautiful and there's symmetry and there's, a, there's almost a fluidity to what it is you're speaking about, which flies in the face of the scientific norms and, for example, Higgs boson and uh, a giant equation on a page. And that application is, uh, well, I suppose it's, it's quite obvious when it comes to the English language and how you manage to use that cipher. So is there any example you could give the listeners uh, just to give them, a, I suppose, a practical understanding of what you can do with it? Yeah, um, the, 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 one, the one I like to give right away is because this was, this was got from a Freemasonic symbol because we have that compass and square and there's the G in the center there. And that's where, that's where I stopped in the English alphabet because it's the seventh letter and that becomes the Sabbath. That, that compass and square reference two things. Um, and it's in Genesis 1.1, it's heaven and earth. And now these principles of the sky being heaven, ground being earth, are seen, you know, it's, well, at least it's seen worldwide. I mean, it's seen worldwide, but it, in, the, in Sanskrit, the first alphabet or language that we have, they had this, I think it's called uh, Dius Prithvi. And it was the same concepts, heaven and earth. And so we have these concepts that go all the way up to today. So heaven. H is 6, E is 5, A is 1, V is 5, E is 5, and N is 1. This comes together to give you 23. Earth equals 24. E is 5, A is 1, R is 5, T is 7, um, and H is 6. This comes together to give you 24. So you have heaven equaling 23 and earth equaling 24. This comes together to give you 47. Well, if you look at the back of the dollar bill, that, that pyramid that's on the, the United States dollar bill yeah. is 47 degrees. Um, 
the Holy Bible, the one I have, it's, I think it's from 1932, it's a Masonic edition. Um, the, the compass is open at 47 degrees. The, the, the number of degrees between the Tropic of Capricorn and the Tropic of Cancer is 47 degrees. Half of 47 degrees is 23.5. This is the axial tilt of the Earth. Wow. It's with like 0.1 degree or something. It's like very, very, very close. So the, this is a practical application of something that, you know, we have this little interpretation of heaven, like it's a place somewhere in the sky. I, mean, I don't, but many people do, of course, yeah. you know, um, because Earth is a very tangible place. We're standing on it. So it's like, well, if, you know, but then there's also this idea that heaven is a reflection of Earth, right? And so what's interesting is there's one number between heaven and Earth. Um, heaven equals 23 and Earth equals 24. Well, that one number, I believe, represents you. Um, and it's you in the middle, of, if you will, the center of the vortex between the, the as above and the so below, mm -hmm. and that you are at this position to view them both. Um, and that's actually what you're here to do. And, and um, so, and then there's, um, so that's heaven and earth. Okay. So let's look at, now we say earth, we know that there's 24 hours in an earth day, right? It's the basic, the basic structure of time that we work with. Yeah. Sunrises, that's earth equals 24. That makes sense, right? Of course, Earth would equal 24. Mm -hmm. Heaven equals 23. Well, what, what's so important about 23, right? Well, in human genetics, there's 23 chromosomes that make up the human being. So in the, in the, um, the what is the amniotic fluid, I guess, of your mother's womb, there's that first egg of creation, of your creation, and there's 23 chromosomes in that egg. So if you understand that heaven is that, is that egg, that initial egg that creates the temple of the temple, by the way, is 23 as well. Um, if, if you understand that that's going to create the temple that to house the soul of the Marty Leeds or the John Gibbons, yeah. the, that's then the idea that heaven resides in you. Well, that's, this is not, this is the actual math that goes to it. This is not a, you know, this is not a symbolic thing at all. It's not saying no, no, literally heaven resides in you. The 23 chromosomes, if you understand that that's heaven, then that's, then that's you. Now, how many cultures have told us this time and time and time and time again? They've said this. Now, this is through our language understanding this and through very, I mean, two very fundamental concepts such as heaven and earth. So I found this very intriguing. So this is very, these are a few of the very applicable ways you can use this cipher. And there's just, I mean, basically, I was going to write one book on it. And now I'm writing two, and I'm almost, I'm probably two-thirds of the way of the second volume. And I've already realized I've got to write at least a third volume on it. Because there's so much you can do with it. I mean, literally, I've done, I went to, you know, the rainbow, I went to the solar system, I went to, you know, all of these different disparate or seemingly disparate ideas yeah. and found connectivity through them all, through number, through our language, through the very words we speak. So then surely there must be uh, people or groups of people who have, I suppose, very clear um ideas of what this is all about or access to this information. You've, you've mentioned Freemasonry and, uh, their symbology there because language assumedly didn't just come from nowhere and it has evolved over time and would there be would there be any kind of point in history that you could look at and say well language took a jump and new words were created i mean a lot of people talk about the language of shakespeare and a lot of the words that we use in modern day english seem to have been created by shakespeare and in in his great works could it be that somebody like William Shakespeare had knowledge and an esoteric knowledge that is hidden or buried now that we don't necessarily have 
and that you're managing to actually uncover? And this is where language came from? It, it, as far as the question of where languages come from, it's, it's, I can't answer it. There's so many people have asked me that. It's just like, I, I really have no idea. The only thing I can point to is that in the beginning was the word. And so somehow this idea of, we think of language as just one aspect, right? Of just us speaking, as we, as we said, but this is, this is just one way of expressing language. And language is symbol in one way. So when we speak in sign language, you know, two people can communicate without a single sound coming out of their mouth, and yet they can have a, a long conversation. So this gives us a completely different understanding of what language is. Um, I, 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 I really, really believe, um, and I haven't looked into this, but that Shakespeare or, and of course, William Shakespeare is probably not just one guy. It was probably a collective of Well, absolutely, yeah. You know, I mean, we're really coming to that understanding that it wasn't just dude, you know. I, th I think that these people absolutely know, knew this. And not only did they know this, but they, I think that that's what William Shakespeare's plays are all about. I mean, I really think so. That you actually, we can actually go into William Shakespeare's plays with, you know, with this cipher and actually decode them now and, and, and find, you know, mathematical proportions, you know, uh, just, I mean, tons of different things. Um, uh, and, and one way we can do this, um, and like I said, I haven't really looked into Shakespeare. I have a friend who's actually, a, um, she graduated with a, a degree and her focus was on Shakespeare. And so she's very knowledgeable on the subject. And I already contacted her um, about possibly doing something, but I've just got a lot of my plate right now. But yeah, I really, really think that the people of the past, so the Shakespeare's and things like this, absolutely knew this. And when they were actually creating their plays or their sketches or whatever, Leonardo da Vinci, for instance, I absolutely believe that he knew this stuff. Um, and the reason that it may have had to go underground in one way is because it is an empowering knowledge, you know? I mean, I, I think it's extremely empowering. And so if somebody wants to take power over this earth, they would, and they knew this knowledge, they would hide it and then suppress it from the regular, from, well, you and I, if you will, yeah. you know? Are there people on this planet right now that know this knowledge that are keeping it from us? Absolutely. Absolutely, I believe there are people on this planet that know this, and I believe that those people are keeping this knowledge from us, um, and that it's very intentional, and that they actually set up curriculums so that we do not understand this material. Um, now, you know, when I look at somebody like, I just did a video on Skull and Bones, and it's like an eight-minute eight minute video, and it really kind of breaks down what the 322 means, and et cetera, et cetera. Now, George Bush was part of the Skull and Bone Society, and he actually set up a, um, an educational curriculum when he was in office called No Child Left Behind. Yeah. Now, if he understands this information, which I absolutely believe he does, then in the position of power that he's in, by setting up an educational curriculum that doesn't express this stuff and teach this stuff, he's leaving every child behind. Yeah. Now, you know what I mean? So... What this information does is empower people. It's empowered me in a way. I mean, you know, I've actually, because of uncovering this, I've gotten to on platforms now and, and gotten to speak to people like yourself um, all across the world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it's very empowering information. And it's, it, it really um, it coalesces your entire life, synchronizes your entire life. Um, and so do I think people on this planet know this? Yes. I think there's always been. A suppression of this knowledge throughout history. This is the Inquisition in one in one way. You know, this is um, you know the, the Knights Templar going underground in one way. Um, and so, 
you know, the, the good thing is, is that they hide their secrets in plain sight. And if you're crafty or clever enough, or if you're looking, then you can find it. So you mentioned Knights Templar and uh, Inquisition. And of course, you mentioned Freemasons earlier on. Are it, is it a, the network of secret societies that so many people speak about and we often speak about on this show who are privy to this knowledge and why don't they, is it an issue of control and power that they don't want, I suppose, the, the great unwashed masses to know this kind of thing because it's empowering and that might dilute their power? Or what's your theory on that, Marty? I, I, that is my theory, I think. You know, I take actually a different position as far as like Knights Templar, uh, Freemason and stuff like that. I don't think the organization of Freemasonry in itself is a, is a negative institution or an evil organization or anything like that. Okay. I think it's probably been overtaken by people with terrible intentions um, throughout the years that they've actually come to know this knowledge and their egotism, their power has gotten the best of them. Freemason, Freemasonry to me is has actually been wonderful, and I'm not a Freemason. I've never been to any Freemasonic Hall or anything like that. Yeah. But understanding their symbols, um, stories, things like that has helped me understand my own life. And so I, I can't see that Freemasonry is a negative or evil institution in and of itself. Mm. Now, are these secret societies, have they been overtaken? Quite possibly, yes. Are, you know, and they do want to keep the uh, masses dumbed down. You know, I really think that that's what, what's going on now. The good thing is, is that we have the opportunity to take this back, to take this knowledge structure back. Yeah, and so I so I think that's the most important thing, and so this is what's really one one of the things that's compelled me as well, um, because it helped me make so much sense in my life that I felt an obligation, a responsibility to, um, like I said, put this in a, in book form. And, and, and you know, well, my web series is free. I don't ask anything of you. I don't ask you to believe me. I don't ask. You don't even have to sit through a commercial. You know, you don't have to give me a cent of your money. And so this is this is very important to me to relay this information just because it's been so uh, wonderful for me. Yeah. And do you think it can be equally empowering for anybody provided they're willing to take the time just to actually learn the uh, well, le learn the system and make themselves for the first time for most people aware of what's actually going on with regard to numbers and become numerically literate in an esoteric sense? Yeah, well, this this process for me was an enlightening process. And I think the idea of enlightenment is available to everyone. It's not exclusive to somebody in some secret society. It's not exclusive to some bloodline. It's not exclusive to somebody that has money that's at the top of the upper echelon or whatever, you know. Yeah. This is for everybody. And I really think that um, it, it, it can change your life. Um, now, it's, it's an uphill battle for me. Because just, you know, basically every interview I've started with, it was the same way I started with you. People are like, I don't like math, you know? Yeah. And, and like, I, I don't know if we caught this in because we got cut off, but I, you know, let me say, I, I don't, I didn't like math either. Um, but I think that there's a reason why we don't, we don't like math it's because we're taught to not like it. Mm. We're taught ugly, stupid equations or riddles. And yet we could be taught the golden mean. The golden proportion. And then when you're taught this, you can see it everywhere in nature. You can look at a flower, a leaf, uh, you know, anything, your human body, you know, and, and see this. And so I think that this has absolutely been suppressed, and there's a reason that it's been suppressed. Well, it's very interesting that you say that, because one thing I always noticed in school when it came to uh, the curriculum, now I noticed it not specifically with regard to mathematics, but uh, languages, and I have a great interest in languages. And 
I always noticed that in school, languages were never thought as a language. They were thought as a subject and it seemed like they were, to me, it seemed like they were deliberately made as boring as humanely possible. And in Ireland, where I come from, our native tongue is Gaelic and people will come out of school having studied, in inverted commas, studied the Gaelic language for the bones of 15 years and the vast majority come out without being able to string a sentence together. Now, to me, a language can be learned very, very comfortably in six months to a year if you're sitting in a classroom for an hour or two hours a day supposedly learning it, provided it's taught as a language. And I could never get my head around this. And why would it be that the powers that be, I suppose, or those who were setting the curricula would decide to teach language in such a way it was almost like they deliberately didn't want people to, to learn about that. And basically you're saying, saying the same thing when it comes to maths. And my experience of maths in school uh, was it was just so off-putting and so, uh, so mind-numbing in complete contrast to the research I've done into what it is that you're teaching. Um, yeah, I, I think the whole of the, the, the school system is like that. So any subject we talk about, you know, whether it's language, whether, I mean, even history, you know. I mean, I remember seeing a book when I was younger that was literally telling us that the people of the past thought the world was flat. And this is, this is absolute bullshit. Yeah. There is, there is case after case where people absolutely knew the, the circular nature of nature, the, of the cosmos, of how to navigate. I mean, the people that got into ships and navigated using the positions of the stars in the sky to get to the new world absolutely knew that the world was round. You know, I make the point in the book that, you know, ground and round, all you have to do is take the, you know, the G away. Yeah. So what is the ground telling you? It's round. You know, so this idea that we are taught this, we are drilled into this, uh, into our heads about the ideas like this. And it's, it's absolute nonsense. You do any little bit of research and every, most people of the past, you know, if they had any education whatsoever, absolutely knew the world was round. You know, that's just one one example, of course, you know. I, when, after leaving school, I didn't graduate college or anything like that. When I started learning things on my own, I realized I spent more time unlearning the stuff that I learned in school than I actually did learning things about the nature of our reality. Yeah. And so literally I spent, you know, and, and then I think about, okay, I'm 33 years old right now. What if I would have had all of that time to actually learn about what was going on in this planet, in this incarnation, in this manifestation, I would be a lot smarter than I am right now. <laughs> That's for sure. You yeah. know, and I yeah. think people around me would be. Um, but un- unfortunately we have to, you know, we get set out when we're 18 or whatever you see, you go to college, you get a job, whatever it is. And, you know, I had to, I had to just go at that point when I actually started making decisions for myself at 18 years old, 19 years old, I made the decision. I started making the decision for myself that I need to learn again, you know? And so I went and I learned, you know, I read science and, you know, I, I, the whole works of Carl Sagan. And then I, where did that lead me? And where did this, you know, like, and then it just kind of went from there. Um, it's, it's really unfortunate that you can, um, walk out of the street today and it's, and you, and you talk to somebody and the, their, their knowledge base is so minuscule mm-hmm. and really it's not even a knowledge base. What it is, is a belief system. Yeah. They want to tell you about their belief system, whatever it is, you know, um, my belief system is mathematics is boring. Well, that's just your belief system. Mathematics isn't boring whatsoever. It's awesome. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and so, and we're taught belief systems. That's what we're taught. You know, we're not taught how to think we're taught what to think. I couldn't and agree more. So, 
Yeah. And so really, and so my own experience was just getting out of school, unlearning all of this stuff. And then once I, once I cleared my slate, then I could actually get into the meat and potatoes. And then when I, when I did this, well, the, the most interesting thing about all of it is that I realized how simple some of this stuff is mm. and how really the lines are blurred and we're taught this messy, you know, ugly way of learning everything, history, mathematics, language, et cetera, et cetera. When you strip it all away, the core is easy. It really is, you know? So, um, so yeah. So Marty, what do you think would change, for example, in an ideal world, if people really understood the sacred aspects of math and mythology and the esoteric side of things? We'd presumably be living in a very different world, but what do you think on a practical level would be different? Everything. How we, how we treat one another, what our political system would look like, you know, what our civilization would, would look like, what art would look like, what music would sound like, what, you know, what structures we build. You know, I mean, if you look at the people of the past that are, were, um, you know, spiritual, very spiritual, very vehemently believed in God, mm. you know, what did they spend their time doing? you know, building these earthen mounts or stone structures or, you know, these temples that, you know, um, consecrate these ideas, you know, um, like when you look at, you know, we don't really build like a Rosalind chapel today, you know, what do we build? You know, we build just, you know, trashy buildings that have, you know, they're not, they're not enjoyable to look at. They're architecturally, they're just kind of simple. You know what I mean? That's so true. I, yeah. Every facet of our, of our society would change. I really believe that. Because we'd actually be learning instead of being, I mean, how many of us are just completely lost in this world? You know, we really have no idea who we are, where we're going, what are we doing here? You know, we have, we can get no answers to this stuff. This for me was an answer. And I'm, 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 I'm of, uh, I have a scientific mind. I want a solid answer for things. I want the straightforward answer. I want proof. And this was proof for me. And I think it was proof for the people of the past. Now, so, you know, your question is like, what would change in society? Everything. I really believe that. Everything would change. It's only because it's happened in my own life. My own life has completely changed. So I can only assume that if more people learn this, this would, you know, 100 monkey principle, if you will, you know, it would, it, would, it would grow fast and it would change people's minds very fast. Yeah, so we would reach a tipping point at some stage. And do you think then through your own experience that we have a, a kind of an unconscious knowledge of, of, of this inbuilt into us? Or do you think it's really something that we have to, uh, we have to decide that we want to know about and then learn it, I suppose, from a book? Because personally, my belief with that is that it's inbuilt in all of us. Because if we are a microcosm of the universe, well, then presumably it must be in us. If it's out of us, it's also in us at the same time to apply the theory. Um, what, are your, what are your views on that? Yeah, I think when, when you talk about a body of knowledge, you know, you're talking about your body and that all of knowledge that you need, like if you want to learn about five, well, all you have to do is look down at your arm, you know, if you want to learn about this ratio of 1.618, all you have to do is, you know, your feet to your navel is one and you can actually measure this on your body. So I think that we are constructions. I mean, we are the last thing the universe decided to do. Mm -hmm. And so we are the, you know, literally, right, if, if there's a linear time frame, if you will. And so we are like this, almost like this perfect construction of what, 13.7 billion years or whatever it is, right? 
I think it's Leo Le- Tzu or Lao Tzu, um, said, what he said, um, you know, he who knows the world is ignorant, but he who knows himself is, you know, intelligent, is, is the enlightened one, you know, and then the Greek Delphic Oracle says to know thyself, this stuff is embedded in us. We're made of this. We're crafted by it. We're crafted by the hands of time itself, which follow these number patterns. So understanding them, it links you to the stars above, you know, um, and how many of us actually go out and actually look at the stars anymore, you know? We're, we're so far away from this knowledge base, this ancient knowledge base. And it's so much more complete and um, um, comprehensive than what we're learning right now, what science is giving us right now. And something that springs to mind as you speak and as we talk about numbers, um, well, the thoughts of a matrix. And there are theories out there that are coming to light more and more that we are, uh, well, I suppose, like the movie The Matrix, that we are living in a kind of a holographic matrix per se. Um, do, you, do you think that to apply the numerical template to that sheds any kind of light on it? Yeah, I mean, the idea of a matrix, I, you know, I, I, I like that idea. And I, t- I actually talk about that, about the idea that this is kind of a hologram, mm-hmm. you know, in, in one way. But the hologram is real to us, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's no doubting that, you know. I mean, I, you know, when I hear new age people talk about, man, this isn't real and stuff. I'm like, no, I got hit twice last year on my bike by a car. It's real, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it hurt. You know, so when, when we talk about like, you know, yes, maybe the idea of understanding the world is, the, is this matrix, but what's more important is our own experience. You know what I mean? So I, you know, the idea of understanding that now, what is the one thing that um, we know for certain on this planet, we're going to die. That's the only thing that we know for certain, we say death and taxes, but a lot of people don't even pay taxes. So yeah. it's really the only thing is death. So the idea of a, of a hologram. Right. Well, the hologram, if it is a hologram, would be the, the hologram of matter. Right. OK. Um, and, and the spirit is in, 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 you know, injected into the matter, if you will. So what happens when you die is the question the, you do you escape the hologram? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, we we've spirit is injected into matter so we can have the experience that we're having. We have to learn from this experience and then we have to move on. You know what I mean? Um, and so the, the idea of a hologram, I'm, I'm cool with that. I, I actually like that idea quite a bit, but it doesn't escape the fact that we feel and, you know, and we have pain and joy. And those are the things that I think that we should be focusing on because these emotions and feelings are, you know, I mean, it's the, the base of who we are as, as people, really, you know, who doesn't love to laugh? I certainly do. Who doesn't like sex? Love it. You know, who, you know what I mean? There you go. Um, you know, so this is uh, focusing on, the experience itself, as opposed to trying to, well, you know, I mean, say it's one thing or the other. I would rather focus on the experience and what the experience has to say. You know what I mean? Okay. Um, yeah. and, you know, I make the point that human beings are in the position that we're the only, we're the only creature or living creature, as far as we know, that can actually create perfect geometry as we do. Nature herself can't do that. We go out into nature, you don't see perfect circles. Yeah, we can create that perfect circle, you know, so it really says something about the nature of our own intelligence and our own experience. You know what I mean? Like we are kind of at the top of that, that we are able to um, make decisions within the matrix to change it itself. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So is it almost like um, a paradigm nearly that we have free will within this kind of a paradigm or perimeter and we can make choices within that, but we are bound by the rules, if you like? 
Yeah, I, I, I can't agree with that more. I think at the heart, what we are is free will. I really do. Mm. You know, we have a lot of, of philosophy of talking about, oh, you know, free will, is, is there free will, is there not, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I think that, you know, you know, you can make choices throughout your life and those choices affect you. And I've, I've experienced this for my 33 years. I've made choices that have affected me in good ways, in extremely good ways, and bad ways, too. Mm. And I've felt a karmic return. And so I think free will is actually at the heart of what we are. Why? Because we're co-creators of this, of this universe, co-creators of, this, of our experience. Um, and we know this for a fact. You know? We can go and create a building, or we can go and write a song, or I, you know, we can go and start a podcast or whatever and help change and help co-create the world. This, I mean, to me, that's a fact. You know what I mean? Yeah. And to say that we don't have free will, I think is just silly. I, th- I think it's just, I don't, I don't really think that that's even really being philosophical at all, you know? And this is my opinion after thinking about this for a long time. So, Well, I have to say I'd agree with you on that. I think you're dead right. And everything that we see in the world, whether it's a hologram or not, I mean, in our tangible existence comes from thought so it comes from within and it comes from without at the same time so uh even even if you look at a building you can see how that can be linked to to humanity or to existence or something existential or esoteric like that because we wouldn't have that building if it wasn't for a thought that sprung from who knows where but uh certainly from either within or without or both at the same time yeah, absolutely. I mean, the iPhone was in somebody's head at one point, you know? Exactly, yeah. And then, and, and we can't get around that fact. And so, so what, what does that say about our own abilities? What does it say about the uh, imagination? Well, the imagination, the nation of images, right? Mm-hmm. The iPhone, in one way, is an archetype, you know? Um, it's, a, it's a device of communication. It can, you know, it's, a, it's the library of Alexandria in your hand. You can get any information at the speed of light. You know, this is crazy. This was in somebody's head at one point, and now it's a reality. So my question is, what else do we got in there? What else can we pull from the image nation or the, you know, that our imagination or the astral plane, the invisible landscape, whatever you want to call it, that we can actually pull out into the world? I, the, the, the people of the past, some, you know, let's just take the Egyptians. How the hell did they build the Great Pyramids Giza? We really don't know. Right. But that must have been in their heads at some point. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's really asking us to like go in there and say, what does the Great Pyramid of Giza do? Squares the circle. Well, squaring the circle must be pretty fucking important. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and so we should focus on that. And I, I just, I just did this interview and they asked me about crop circles, right? And, you know, we don't know who makes these crop circles. What are the aliens, angels, whatever they are, right? Mm. There was a crop circle that encoded pi. Now, when a crop circle encodes pi, and we don't know where it comes from, that means we should probably look at pi, you know. Now, pi is something that's within us. You know, it's, it's all around us. It's within us. So, you know, if, if we can take something from within the, the imagination, nation of images, and pull it out, it's re- and, and, and show it where people did not know about it before. It's like, oh, okay, that seems supernatural, but not really. You're just kind of pulling the super from within the natural and realizing that the natural was just super in the first place. Yeah. Do, do you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm trying to say here? Yeah, absolutely. It makes complete sense. So, Marty, um, I've heard vicious rumors of a vision you might have had in the past. What can you tell me about the electric serpent? Um, yeah, uh, basically... Um, 
you know, I, I actually wrote about this in this volume one very briefly, um, and, um, and it's and dealing with this thing called the Ouroboros. Um, one night I had taken a um, psychedelic sacrament, if you will, with some friends and up on a, on a hill, and I was looking, at, basically all night I was just completely enamored by the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Now, this, this alchemical Ouroboros is actually this, you know, it's the snake that eats its tail. Yeah. And, you know, if you look up at the Milky Way galaxy in the dark rift, um, there's this place where it's like the dark rift where it kind of separates. You know, there's like a, a point of break, if you will, between in the, in the center of our galaxy. Yeah. And this is, you can actually look at it and actually see like the snake that's, that's eating its tail, like the Ouroboros. And this actually... Um, it speaks of the regenerative aspects of not only the galaxy, but the entire universe in and of itself. And this actually leads to the idea of a Taurus, what goes in, comes out, etc., etc. And so I, I, had, I had a vision of this serpent, and I was like kind of on its tail, and it was very electrifying and very like digital, if you will. Yeah. And it was looking right at me. Um, and I, I was just looking at it and I was like, oh, wow, this thing is just, it was so profound. It just, it, it just knocked me on my ass. And so when I, when I came down and, you know, I, I thought about this for a long time, I, I wanted to know what that was, what was I looking at and why is the idea of a serpent seen worldwide? I mean, we see this everywhere. Any religion or spirituality you go to has a serpent in it, you know? Yeah. Um, it, you know, so, so, you know, when I was looking at this, I'm like, okay, if I was focused on the Milky Way galaxy the entire night, and I'm thinking about the stars, it was obviously in the stars, and yet I was having the vision within myself, right? And so this, this idea of this, this serpent being the Milky Way galaxy, um, this, this, this snake eating its tail, self-regenerative you know, um, creature, if you will, really reminded me of DNA and that the DNA has this self-replicating structure. Mm. And so really was kind of giving me this idea like, what well, you know, what am I, what am I looking at there? You know, and if I'm looking at the, the galaxy and this Ouroboros, and yet it has the same kind of aspects of the DNA. Okay. And is this as above, so below directly communicating with me? Is this digital serpent, the spirit that's looking directly in my eyes? Is this kind of what it's telling me? Now, it didn't say anything to me, but this was the kind of conclusion that I came to. So this serpent that I was looking at just imprinted on my brain. And so I went looking for this thing, and I went on the Internet, and I was looking and looking and looking. And I never found anything that really gave me this idea of what it was really, you know, the, the, what it, the serpent looked like. And then I, I found this cross-section of DNA. Um, and it's this, it's, it really looks like this digital cross-section of DNA. And if you look at this thing, and you can actually look this up on the internet, and I put it in the book, um, you can actually see, like, eyes in it and, and, and a mouth. Um, you know, you have to look very creatively at it. Okay. But when you do, and I was like, as soon as I saw that, I, I was like, that's what I saw that night. There was no doubt in my head because it was so imprinted on my brain that when I saw that image, I was like, that's, that's what I saw. There was no doubt. And even looking at it today, it's just like it conjures that up instantly. And so this was very interesting to me. Um, and it really, it really kind of says, it said to me anyway, that what was in the stars is in you as well. So the stars are crafting you, you are crafting the stars. It's a simultaneous, it's, 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 it's a Mobius strip and you're in the middle of it, you know, and this is what that kind of said to me. So this was a very, it was, it was just a, an amazing moment for me. So. Well, you used the, uh, the, the fantastic term psychedelic sacrament there. Um, let's touch on that for a second, because 
so many people and we know cultures right back in history have advocated the use of psychedelics to open things up to a different level and to experience different levels of consciousness. And what what is your experience of that been with regard to what we've spoken about in the past? Has it been enlightening for you generally? I mean, obviously it has been with the electric serpent, but in general terms. Um, well, yeah, let's go back to, you know, when I was talking about earlier about when I was like 18 or 19, I started making my own decisions. It was only then at that point in my life where I was supposed to be an adult, you know, yep. legally anyway, I really was, that was that point in my life where I started making my own decisions. When I started doing that was after my first, um, psychedelic trip. Um, and I absolutely is when I first started making decisions for myself. Um, I was with a friend. I knew nothing about it. You know, we had taken um, some mushrooms um, when I was younger, and it was literally I had just, just a mind-altering experience. And it was only then that I really started pursuing um, all of the stuff that has led me to what I'm doing now. Um, and so this idea of, um, well, really what, what, it, what it does is takes you out of your normal everyday thinking and shows you the expanse of what you what we're given in this world yeah and this this can be done by everybody now now at least in america these things are illegal you know and that's it's it's obscene it's obtuse you know especially if for instance if think about it this way everybody makes the argument well hey i own my body or whatever you can't tell me what i can ingest and ingest and that's a great argument i take that argument one step further if that thing helped me to lead, if, if it helped me to get to God, to get to understand my own spirituality, understand myself, then the government is actually standing between me and the deity mm. and, and God. So now it's a totally different argument between like, oh, you know, well, you know, whatever. This, this, this can help uh, cancer patients or you can't tell me what to do with my body. No, now you're telling me you're standing between me and God. You, I will never accept that. And this, is, this really brings the, the, the discussion to a whole new level in it for me. You know? um, and the fact that, at least in America, you have to be, um, you have to have, you have to be an organized uh, religion. Like I know that they actually take ayahuasca now in like some Santo Diamond churches in like an Oregon, I think. That's right. Um, and so they had to go to the Supreme Court and say, hey, this is part of our religion. You have to accept this or you have to recognize this. Well, I don't, what if I'm not part of an organized religion and I just want to explore my consciousness myself and explore the nature of God itself? You're going to cut that off for me? No way. No way. You know, um, this said, I mean, I'm saying all this and it's been probably years since I've taken a psychedelic sacrament. So, um, you know, so in one way, yes, it can lead you to God, but I don't think it, you know, that's the only way or you have to do that in any way whatsoever. I don't think that, you know, some people say that, you know, psychedelics are the only way to experience this this awe or this wonder. And I, I don't agree with that at all. You know, I don't really, and I don't advocate it, but I will say that it helped me for sure. Yeah, well, that that's really interesting. And I agree with you on that. I don't think that they're necessary uh, for everybody. Some people can do it without even realizing and other people can consciously, I think, change their awareness. I mean, there's there's a, a Mexican Indian who I have been lucky, lucky enough on my travels to come into contact with quite a bit. And he's a guy who can quite literally, he can lie down in a dark room, close his eyes. And now I have only his word to go on this, but I've seen some of uh, some of the drawings that he makes in the dark while he is experiencing a level of different consciousness as he describes it. And it's amazing because so much of what he draws, um, 
and, and bear in mind he can't physically see what he's drawing at the time it ties into what you've spoken about with the electric serpent and with DNA strands and Ouroboros and that, that kind of thing and it's amazing it, it's almost like this guy is channeling ancient uh, ancient rock art at times are these ubiquitous symbols that we see from the Incas to the Aztecs to the ancient Celts and all this kind of thing and it, it's just amazing and to me it just uh, it fascinates me because it points all the time towards levels of unconscious and conscious understanding that we don't we don't believe or we're taught to believe we don't have access to when we really do and it's just a case of uh, of finding the answers to those questions in a slightly different way to that that we're thought from the time we're brought up be it through school or society or whatever else it might be yeah you know what i mean you have to go and look for it, you know, you, whatever it is, to, to find yourself, your answers, whatever, it's, it's a quest. And, uh, you know, I, you know, when you break, when you break this down linguistically, you know, quest, um, in order to do that quest, you have to question yourself, your surroundings, what you've learned, yeah. what, it, what it is to be, it's the only way to do it. Why? Because that's all we are given is questions. We're given no answers in this planet, mm. in, the, in this incarnation. We can't get an answer to a single thing. But you can understand yourself. And th this is what, at first, uh, let me back up here. When you look about the nature of reality, what, what is this? Where are we going? Where did we come from? You know, what, is there a meaning to life? Um, is there a God? How is it held together? We have all these questions. We can't get answers for that, right? So at first, when I was younger, this was very troubling to me because it was like, God, this is just ridiculous. There can't be a God because he doesn't give us any answers. But really, there is the answer. And the answer is understanding the self. The answer is actually identifying who you are. And now that I've, and, and the people of the past have told us about this, it's the, it's the way, it's the enlightenment, it's the, it's the Tao, it's the, you know, the way of the warrior, the hero's journey, it's the alchemical, it's being reborn as a Christian, it's the alchemical process, it's all of these things. They're all talking about the same thing. And what that pursuit is, in my opinion, is recognizing the divine within. Yeah. Once these people got there, they couldn't go anywhere else because it was a truth so profound, so amazing that they could, you know, that all they could do is actually, you know, well, I mean, in one way, do as I have done, you know, like write a book about it or, or do a, a painting or something or make some fantastic piece of art that encodes all this stuff in here so other people could find it. You know, um, this was the process that I kind of underwent and it was, it was just so amazing to me. And once again, that's a very lofty statement. That's basically saying that I'm an enlightened person and that and anybody that's listening, I don't ask you to believe me. In fact, I ask you not to believe me one way. Um, but I do have a lot of information out there that might astound you, that you might have never thought about before. And so, so you know, when you get all these questions about um, our reality, I think that's the intelligence of the thing itself. Because God differentiated himself into matter and intentionally lost himself in matter so he could find himself. Mm -hmm. And that God is you. That God is me. That God is everybody that, that exists right now. And that is our quest. That is our journey to wake ourselves up and, and realize our true potential and who we really are. And in a sense, it's about remembering who we are as opposed to looking forward almost because it's always been there. Yeah. Okay. So remember, this is a very important word. Remember. Okay. When we talk about um, the Big Bang or God saying, let there be light, is that God differentiates so into matter. 
And so what did he do? He dismembered himself. Just like Osiris in the myth, dismembered. And what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to remember. We're supposed to bring it, we're supposed to tie it all back together. And so this is actually what religion is doing in one way, because a ligio is a link, or it's a, it's a yoke or a union, it's a, it's, a, it's a chain. And so it's it's saying, re, re-link yourself back to the, the, the first moments of creation, what that was, and that is this, this holistic aspect of the, the divine being. And so the idea of remembering is actually like bringing all this stuff together in, in a holy way, making it whole, and realizing that you are in the center of that whole. And this really is the, the uh, hermetic or alchemical statement of a God is uh, whose center is everywhere and circumference nowhere, and that center is you. It's amazing. Almost a little bit like Back to the Future, which again ties in with the symbol of the Ouroboros. You know, it's absolutely fascinating for me. And as we begin to tie things up, Marty, uh, tell us about the books, how people can get their hands on the books and how they can find out more about you. Uh, yeah, my website is www.martyleads33.com. And there's a bunch of stuff on there, some reviews, um, sample chapters of the books, all the videos, um, and then I've done some music on there as well. And and then the, the best place to get the books, I have two books, Pi the Great Work um, and Pi in the English Alphabet Volume 1. And you can get both of those at Amazon.com or just go to my site. You can get it at CreateSpace.com as well. Um, and I'm prepping Volume 2 of Pi in the English Alphabet right now. Um, and I'm hoping that it'll be out first of this next year um and it really looks like i'm like i said i'm going to do a volume three on it now because there's like like i said there's just a lot of information to go go over so well we'll get the links up on the website and i must say i'm very much looking forward to uh to reading your new material and have you thought any further into the future beyond that so what would be next for you once you've that completed um, well, you know, right now I'm trying to get the volume two done and then, um, I'm trying to start, I'm starting to slowly put together volume three and looking at, um, a lot of different things like the tarot deck, um, uh, like the, uh, the symbolism of bees, if you will. Yeah. Um, so I, beyond that, I can't really look beyond that. I'm, I actually hope to kind of put this aside for a little while. I'm not aside, but, um, take my focus somewhere else and actually try to focus on music again a little bit because mm-hmm. I've really had to put that on the back burner to pursue this, which has been absolutely wonderful and fantastic. I'm not complaining at all, but um, I'd really like to get back to and try to um, you know make a record or something. So, Fantastic. Well, we'll be uh, keeping in touch with you, Marty. And as I say, very much looking forward to uh, reading your new material. It's been absolutely fantastic having you on Alchemy Radio. Thanks a million for coming on. I must say I've enjoyed this conversation immensely and hopefully you will come back to us. I, I would love to. I, I really appreciate having me on and giving the opportunity to uh, spread the word. So I have the power. You have the power. We have the power. Marty Leeds, thank you for joining me today on Alchemy Radio. Thank you. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy starts with the drop You paint me like the canvas and never stops If it wasn't for the walls we fall I'd never known true love You call me down like a storm set to rage 
kids catching candy in the street parade We might have missed a few along the way In order to say, babe, this thing we got Called true love And we now laugh at the games we played Drinking champagne and cruising the interstate Through a crazed past we dug and struggled through To rise anew with this true love Pack my bags in your heart. I sat at your table and never starved. Sometimes these things, babe, they can be so damned hard. But I'm far from losing this true love. We now laugh at the games we played. crazy past we dug and struggled through to rise anew with this true love